love Christmas decorations. I'm Sean. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the lead pastor here. And this is, I, I'm just going to own it. This is one of my favorite times of the year. I don't really like decorating the outside of the house, but the inside of the house, I want Christmas everywhere, right? Don't you love it? Boys and girls, do we like this time of year? I want to hear you. Do we like this time of year, boys and girls? Oh, come on. Seriously? Okay, parents, you don't have to give them any presents. They don't like it. That's fine. I'll try this again. Boys and girls, do we like this time of year? Yes, there we go. Yeah, I love it. Decorations, music, winter clothes, no more pumpkin spice, anything. Everything is now peppermint, right? It's great. But you may have noticed um, we're still in Malachi, right? Did we get our calendar messed up? Is something wrong? I've, I've had several people this morning go, um, we're still in Malachi? I thought it was Advent. What's going on? Well, as we come to the very last part of Malachi, indeed the very last part of the entire Old Testament, you're going to see real quick why we landed here on the first Sunday in Advent. But first, I want to make sure we're all together. So our passage for today is found on page 10 in the ESV translation. Boys and girls, there's a your version is on page 11, and then if you don't have a Bible with you today, in your chair Bible there in front of you, it's found on page 754 if you want to turn there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you. That's our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So Advent means coming, and today God promises to come to his people, but he's going to come in judgment These people, if you remember a couple weeks ago in Malachi, they sarcastically asked him, where is the God of justice? Well, now he answers, I am coming with fire and lots of it. So with that, let's look together at Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask once again, Lord, that you would challenge us. Would you convict us, Lord, of our sin, of our shortcomings? Would you show us yet again your greatness that we might take seriously you coming in judgment? We pray, Lord, that from that point of need, you would once again show us the grace and beauty of the gospel of Jesus. May we cling to him alone. We ask, Father, you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the whole book of Malachi is based in the very first chapter, verse 6, where God asks the question, where is my fear? God's people had a palpable denial of any sort of reverence for him. 
It even went so far as for his nation, his people, to accuse him of being an immoral liar who actually favored evil people over the good people. And it culminated, we saw last week, with his own people saying, we have had enough of you. You're worthless to us, and so we're changing teams. And then right at that point, we finally meet some people in Malachi who fear the Lord. We didn't think that any of those people were around. These people, they value God. And he, in turn, reminds them that they are his special treasure. He actually says that. You're my treasured possession. And he promises them that one day, someday, he will vindicate their faithfulness. And that leads us into our theme for today, where we're going to try to go today, and that's this. God's coming is a burning joy for those longing to see him. We're going to see that there's a burning joy when God comes looking for a family resemblance. So it starts out, verses 1 through 3, the burning joy. God says he's coming like a burning oven. This is the fire of destruction. Earlier, if you were with us, he said he was going to come as a refiner's fire. That's a fire that purifies. That's a fire that heals. That's a fire that makes better. Now he says, I'm coming as a burning oven. The purification is over. It's time to burn the trash. Last week, we saw that it was the arrogant and the evildoers who were envied even called the winners, if you were here, that last passage. They were so dissatisfied with God, they said, you know what? You favor the evil, you favor the arrogant, following you is not worth it. Now God comes and corrects them and says, actually, those are precisely the people who will be burned up. See, these are not the claims of a small provincial God. One of the things you have to understand about Malachi is God's people at this point were more like recovering Babylonians than they were ancient Hebrews. For those of you visiting today, you're like, I don't know what that means. They had been in captivity for over 80 years in this pagan nation called Babylon. They really hadn't been allowed to worship the, the way they were supposed to, and so they came back more Babylonian when they were allowed to come back to their land. They had to be reintroduced to all this stuff. And the Babylonian way of looking at spirituality was gods had little g's and they had geography. And so they had been defeated and taken off to exile because their god had been defeated by the Babylonian god. So now they were back in their god's territory. So yeah, he reigned here, but he's little g, he's provincial, he's small, he's not that big of a deal. He, we don't have to fear him. And so God is coming throughout the book of Malachi and he calls himself the Lord of hosts, the commander in chief of the Lord's armies. And basically saying, I'm kind of a big deal around here and you need to be afraid of me. You need to fear me. You need to revere me. He's showing I'm not some little provincial God. So he's coming in this fierce language, but also notice who he's talking to right now. He's talking to his own faithful people. Look with me at verse 2. Who's he talking to? He says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, you don't have to be a farmer or a rancher to understand that image, do you? A calf leaping from the stall in joy. Perhaps if we suburbanites were the original audience of this text, he might have said, like a puppy with the zoomies or something. But we get the image, right? What the faithful fearers have been longing for is going to finally happen. 
a vindication of their faithfulness in the midst of all this unfaithfulness. And God says, it's going to bring you incredible, incredible joy. You realize what's going on here. This is the, quote, day of judgment. Malachi is looking forward to this day of judgment when God comes to judge. And what's unique to Malachi is he shows that it's a positive thing for God's people. The idea of the day of judgment is all over the place in the Bible. It's all over the place in pop culture. Here Malachi says it's a day of joy. It's a positive image. That's not usually what we think of, is it? In fact, if you're visiting with us today, or maybe you're, you have family and you brought them here today, you're like, why are you talking about judgment? You, why you, I, I would have kept them home. Because see, here's, the, here's, our, here's our deal with judgment. Deep down, we all feel guilty about something, don't we? We all feel like if we were closely examined, we would not measure up. And so we fear moments of accountability, whether it be that annual review or the day of judgment in our hearts, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to find out. Even if we have nothing wrong, deep down, we know we're not right. We don't feel like we're the good guys in the story. And so it's hard for us to see God's coming judgment as joyful, like Malachi says here, it's going to be joyful. But it is. Let's hold on to that feeling. We'll come back to it. But the day of judgment is joyful. All right, boys and girls, I want to make sure you're following Pastor Sean. I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 together. It's found on page 11, or you can look at the slides behind me. Here's what he says. says, But for my favorites, my family, my coming will be like a beautiful sunrise that heals you. You will leap and dance in joy because the bad people who hurt you will be gone forever when I make it happen, says the strong God. Isn't that a great image, boys and girls? That bully who picks on you, God says, I'm going to come make it right. That person who makes you sad, God says, I'm going to come and make that right. That's why the day of judgment, the day of God's coming is a good thing for us. He's going to make it happen. Now, before we move on, a couple things got to handle here. First of all, in verse 3, where it talks about God's people jumping around like a happy calf, trampling down on the wicked. This is not that we get to destroy the wicked. He's already done that. If you want to push the metaphor to its limits, he, the, the, the calf is jumping around on a field of ash because God has already burned him up. We don't get to do it. So do not look at verse 3 and say, oh, I get to get my Bible and my gun and go do some stuff for God. No, okay? That is not Christianity. You do not represent us, all right? It's clear in verse 3 who's doing the work. Look at it, verse 3. It's on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so we got that handled, but we still need to wrestle with this text because let's be honest. The destructive judgment of God coming on humanity isn't something we talk about very often, is it? Especially on days where we have family in town and there's lots of green around the sanctuary. It's supposed to be happy and babies and stuff, Right? I mean, all this joyful dancing around is kind of ruined for many as soon as you say a God of judgment, isn't it? I mean, what about the God of love, right? That's a fair question. It really is. What do we do with such strong language of judgment? Do we ignore it? Do we act like it's not there? Do we try to think about it on a different day? Well, I want to look at a couple different ways to think about this. First of all, in the last book of the Bible called Revelation, not Revelations, it's just Revelation, there's this scene around God's throne where 
under inspiration, John sees all these believers who were killed for the faith, and they cry out to the Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? And this very day, there are Christians experiencing persecution, arrested, beaten, tortured, even dying for their faith. And the thing that helps them not slip into the sin of revenge, but to actually be faithful in persecution, is knowing that one day, someday, God will come and vindicate His people. That's the day of judgment. Maybe that's too spiritual for you. Here's a practical answer. There's a Polish Nobel Prize winning poet named Czesław Miłosz. He lived through both Nazism and Communism, and he writes extensively about how the loss of a belief in a God of judgment leads to hostility. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, the true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, our murders are not going to be judged. See, thinking that they can go away leads people into doing all sorts of evil things to each other. And this is from a guy who lived through the officially atheistic Nazism in Poland and the officially atheistic communism in Poland. It says it, it, it empowers, it actually empowers people to brutality. Okay, a little more modern. There's a Yale theologian who was born in Croatia. He lived through the violence and the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, and he wrote a book about it called Exclusion and Embrace. Here's what Miroslav Wolf says. He says this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine justice. Maybe, like me, you still need a little bit more simpler. I will give you the words of my dad when he caught me doing something stupid and mean. God's going to get you for that. Because <laughs> see, justice, judgment is the other side of love. It's the fulfillment of justice. It says, I see and I will repay. Because that's why the Bible, the Bible doesn't say vengeance is a sin. The Bible says the ven- vengeance belongs to the Lord. Don't usurp his prerogative. God sees and God takes it more seriously than even we do. He will make it right. Now, non-Christians here, I know that you want to reject the concept of a God of judgment. I get that. I do. But let me ask you this. Do you really want to live in a world filled with vendettas, personal vengeance, unaccountable brutality? No. Then let me challenge you that you should want the biblical God of justice to be real. When you've suffered real injustice, when you've really been hurt, not when you're some poindexter in a classroom talking about the problem of evil, when you've actually suffered, the belief that God will one day, someday make it right frees you from seeking to make it right yourself. Knowing that justice comes someday keeps you from trying to force it today. Without an eventual God of justice, we're, we're stuck taking up the sword and just being part of the cycle of retaliation that never stops. See, that's one of the reasons that Malachi can look at the coming day of judgment and say, it's going to make you so happy. You're going to be like a calf jumping around a stall. You're going to be like a puppy running around the living room with the zoomies because God's coming is a burning joy for those who long to see him. The next thing we see in verses four through six is we see a family resemblance. 
So verses one through three are God telling us what he's going to do. Now we get to verse four and he tells us what to do. What are we supposed to do? What's the big command? What's the imperative in this text? He comes and says, remember. That's it. Remember. He's not telling them to prepare for a final exam. You can take that down. We're not there yet. He's not telling them to prepare for a final exam. He's telling them to remember. This is to live out instructions. And I want to stop here because so often when we see law of Moses, we don't think about that correctly. Our English concept of law is terrible at getting the Hebrew concept of Torah. So I want you to take that word law in your mind right now, exit out, and I want you to insert the word instructions. Okay, so God comes and says, remember the instructions of Moses. The law of Moses is really instructions for how to be human. It's the owner's manual for the human heart. If you remember, if you were here last week, or if not, you can look at the previous passage. The complainers last week basically said, we reject all of God's definitions. He calls it evil, we say it's good. He calls it good, we say it's evil. He says, this is what it means to be human. We reject that and walk our own path. And so here, talking to those who do fear him, he says, remember the instructions on how to be human. Remember my instructions. The instructions that were given after God saved his people. So often we, our hearts, we're, we're wired to try to perform for God. And so we read, oh, remember the law of Moses. Okay, we got to jump through hoops to make God love us. But remember, the law of Moses was given after God saved his people. If you're not familiar, the preamble to the Ten Commandments is not, all right, here's my big to-do list. Take care of this and I'll be your God. No, the preamble to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who just rescued you out of Egypt. I've already done the rescue. Now here's what it looks like to be human under me. So the instructions come as a response to grace. So he's not telling us how to be saved. He's telling us, be who you already are. Remember, you're God's family. Live out your family resemblance. And they really needed this. They really needed this grounding right here at the end of the Old Testament because they were about to enter into 400 years of silence. There had never been a period this long in Hebrew history where God had not sent a prophet or a judge or someone to come and give a word of the Lord. They were about to enter a very tumultuous time. If you've been tracking with me here, they're, they're a vassal of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is about to be taken over and conquered by this guy who, while he was alive, was called Alexander. Later, they called him Alexander the Great. So he conquered this whole area. He ends up dying somewhere in India. His generals fight this massive war over who gets control of what. One very kind of more benevolent general takes over the area of Palestine, and he lets them just do their thing, and it's a period of flourishing. Then another general takes over, and he's like, being Jewish is bad, being Greek is good, so be Greek or be dead, and he enforces this really harsh dictatorship on them. They rebel. The events around the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah take place at this time, and they kick him out, and they get to be independent for like a century. And then they start having some other troubles. They're about to get overwhelmed. And so they make this kind of foolish mistake. And they say, hey, let's invite that little tribe over there to come help us. And so they contact the Roman general and say, hey, will you come help us? And Rome is like, oh, we'd love to come help. And they never leave. And through all of that, God is silent. There's nothing from the Lord 
tumultuous parts of their history, they got nothing. And so before they enter into that historical churn, God calls them and says, remember what I've told you. And to make sure that they don't miss it, it's so important that he tells them in verse 5, he's going to send Elijah first. That I will send you Elijah. Now, again, if you've been with me the whole time in Malachi, back in chapter 3, verse 1, God promised that he himself was going to come, like he is here. And then he said, but before that, I'm going to send the messenger of the covenant to prepare the way. Now here, he gives us a name for that guy. God names us, it's Elijah the prophet. So in the Old Testament, the instructions come first. Then God sends prophets to help the people understand and apply the instructions. So Elijah's going to come to help them remember these tremendous instructions God has given them, to help them live out their family resemblance before God himself comes. Now thankfully at this point we don't have to belabor and try to figure out who this person is. Jesus himself pointed to John the Baptist and said, he is Elijah if you'll believe it. The Gospels of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, they all have the same thing, that John the Baptist is the Elijah coming from Malachi 4. So see what Malachi is doing here is this. Malachi is not standing here and just saying, well, here's the good people and here's the bad people. God is coming to get the bad. So all the good people, make your popcorn and watch the show. It's not what he's saying. What he's showing us here is that God wants to come in preparation for his judgment, and he wants to change the hearts and minds of the bad people before he comes and judges them. He wants to prepare them so maybe they can avoid the judgment. He's coming in grace. This is how he describes it himself in verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. He says this. He says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So a decree of utter destruction is a whole phrase that they're using to translate one word, which means curse. Strike the land, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that should sound a little familiar because in the Old Testament book of Exodus, when God is going to come to Egypt in the famous 10 plagues, he says, I'm going to strike the land. So what an original reader would hear this and they would say, oh, God is going to treat Israel like he treated Egypt. It's really fierce. It's really strong. It's scary. It's sad. In fact, it's so bad that in traditional Judaism, when they publicly read the book of Malachi, they take verse 4 and they repeat it after verse 6 because they don't want to end on the word curse. They take it that seriously. Because God is serious about sin and his people. He's serious about evil on the earth and he's coming in judgment because he won't stand it. But notice in the midst of that, there's also grace here, that little word, lest. Did you catch that? God sends Elijah first to mitigate the coming judgment. It's a warning, but it's also an invitation to salvation. Using the image of family relationships, this coming Elijah, he says, are going to call God's people to repentance and to restoration. So at the closing of the Old Testament here, God is calling us to look back at the instructions Moses gives and to look forward to the coming grace that this Elijah person will speak of. So we have Moses, the instructor, and Elijah, the preparer. 
And it's setting us up for something amazing. Because see, the Old Testament began with a deadly choice in a garden where Adam absolutely did not remember God's instructions. And now the Old Testament ends with another instruction to remember God's instructions. And it comes with a promise to help. See, for the people in Malachi's day, their, their, their Messiah King that they were waiting for had not yet come. They knew God was going to do something tremendous. They didn't really know exactly what it was. But they knew God's going to send this guy, this cat named the Messiah, and he's going to like get rid of oppression somehow. And they, and they think in terms of politics, and they're not really sure about all this stuff, but they know God's going to do something about this. And he gives them these tremendous promises to hold on to until he comes. Because God's coming is a burning joy for those longing to see him. So here's why I wanted this to be on the first Sunday in Advent. Because right here, in the midst of this judgment, have you seen it? We have these tremendous, wonderful Advent promises of God coming. When God says, when I come in verse 6, it's clear. He's speaking of himself, right? I means I. God is going to come. And he says, the preparer, Elijah, comes first. So at the very end of the Old Testament, we have this hopeful expectation. God says, I'm coming. But first, Elijah will come to prepare the way. And then those of us who have the New Testament, we have the joy of seeing this fulfillment, of knowing this fulfillment. What they looked forward to, we look back to in faith and with even more understanding. As has already been pointed out, John the Baptist was this coming Elijah. And he preceded who? The Lord Jesus Christ, God in flesh. You know, the idea of Jesus being divine, it wasn't invented by the early church in spite of what the Dan Browns of the day may say, the divinity of the Messiah was a centerpiece of the Old Testament. The idea that God's rescuer would come and somehow be God himself. It's spelled out right here in Malachi, but it's all over the Old Testament. And so when John the Baptist lives in fulfillment of verse 6, he helps the hearts and minds of Israel come back to God. And he did it by looking at Jesus, if you know the story, the first time he sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, right there, that one is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Elijah comes. He prepares the way. He points to God himself. Jesus, who is the Son of righteousness, who rose with healing in his wings. See, Malachi promised that God's people those who fear him don't need to fear his destructive fire of God's judgment because they rest in the promise of the refiner's fire who heals. They just hoped for that. But we know what they don't, don't we? What a privilege that we get to know that we, you and I, can experience the refiner's fire of healing because Jesus experienced the destroying fire of judgment for us. That'll make you leap for joy if you get it. Because deep down, we know that we are the arrogant evildoers. Deep down, we know that we deserve to be burned like trash. But in the gospel, we see that in order for us to feel the rising sun of healing on our faces, in order for us to live in that vindication, to receive that grace, Jesus Christ had to drag his cross to the trash heap outside Jerusalem and be destroyed with the rest of the garbage 
so we wouldn't have to be. Jesus went into the utter darkness of destruction and condemnation in our place to be consumed like stubble, to be turned into ashes. He lived the destruction of verses 1 and 2 so we could live in the joy of verse 3, the calf running around. See, in the gospel, we see that Jesus took on the day of judgment for us by taking our sins to the cross and dying for them. So the hope of Advent, the reason we celebrate Jesus' coming is because God is unwavering on sin. He is completely uncompromising when it comes to sin. He never overlooks it. He never says, oh, shucks, I know you meant well. One day, someday, he is coming to make it all right. And in that day, all the evil, all the selfishness, all the sin of our entire life will be placed on our heads and punished by a holy God. Or it will have already been placed on the head of Jesus at the cross and punished in him. There's no third option. That's why we celebrate Advent, because we place our faith and trust in option two, please. So here at the beginning of the Christmas season, I invite you to taste the burning joy of God's coming. To place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. Let him be your day of judgment so that in him you can run around in joy like a puppy with the zoomies. That is available to you this Christmas season. Take it. Repent even now and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. A gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that there is just a part of our heart that wants to resist your coming in judgment that assumes we're the good guys in the story. Or at least we're not as bad as those people over there doing that. Lord, would you once again overwhelm us with this picture of your unwavering justice, your profound holiness. And then would you show us once again our profound lack of all of that. And Lord, we ask that as we have seen Jesus lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our forgiveness, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, you would indeed draw all people to yourself. Would you do your work of salvation even in these moments? And as you called forth Lazarus from the grave, would you call forth sinners from death to life? We might confess faith and believe. Lord, we pray that this would be a Christmas season to remember. Because we know that we have avoided your judgment because of the work of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.